Humanist Take on the World, episode 14, The Shakers. Welcome to another episode of Humanist Take on the World. I am Dustin. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this episode is a bit late, and I'm definitely sorry about that, but oh boy, life's been crazy. So, you know how we had COVID back in July, and I've gotten like barely more than an episode out since then, and we picked up norovirus. Yeah. Out of the four trips we did this year, got sick out on two of them. They all had definitely, definitely stressful family stuff going on, except for the first one. It's been, it's been crazy. It's been rough. And at least as of recording, uh, Kylie starts preschool tomorrow. This has been a crazy summer. Absolutely crazy summer. Hopefully life moves towards normal as we get to the fall. I really hope I can get back into a, a normal cadence on recording. Uh, but yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been pretty wild. So, let's go ahead and get into the topic. So if you can remember all the way back to the last episode, we talked about cults. And the group we're going to talk about this week is not a cult. Not because it doesn't meet any of the criteria. In fact, it basically meets all of them. Except it's too old. Yeah. We're going to talk about the Shakers. Uh, you may be familiar with this group because of U.S. history class talking about the utopias of the 1800s. You may be f uh, familiar with the woodworking uh, and architectural styles. You may be, maybe have some shaker goods in your home from way, way back, or have seen them in, in a antique store. It's possible you visited one of their former communities that is now a museum or run by the National Park Service. But, oh boy, are they a crazy group. Even if you know some of the crazy, holy shit, there's more. <laughs> so, so what we call the Shakers is officially the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. It's a group that first started to form in 1747 in the Merseyside area of England. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester, kind of that area uh, where Skeptics with a K is from. And it arose within the Quaker movement. Now, Quakers, which we will definitely talk about more later, but they are way less interesting, or more accurately, yeah, they're just way less interesting, uh, 
They were one of the early Protestant, bizarre Protestant movements that took the concept of priesthood of all believers to some real extremes. And those extremes involved believing that women had a right to preach just as much as men. And that everyone had a right to preach. And so the most stereotypical, especially old-timey Quaker service is called a waiting service. Where everybody sits around in the pews in the church and they wait for somebody to feel the spirit move and compel them to talk. And everybody just sits and waits. And then people start talking. As the Quakers were dealing with a lot of persecution, uh, they started to try to look a little more mainstream. In response, James and Jane Wardley got some other Quakers to break off with them to go more ecstatic in how they would worship. And they became known as, colloquially, as the Shaking Quakers because their worship services involved a bunch of dancing and jumping around and waving their arms in the air. And they grew and shrank and grew and shrank as persecution hit them hard. And some of the early members that they recruited uh, were the parents of one Anne Lee. She joined at least within the first, you know, 10 or 15 years. And then she became the leader of the group when she grew up and got married. And she and her husband were leaders. And she had visions, revelations that were revered by her followers. But it seems like she really only had eight followers when they got on a ship sailed out of Liverpool for colonial America in 1774. That vision she had before departure was that... Actually, before we even get to that, uh, they, they took the idea of gender equality... Uh, to the point of believing in a dualistic God, that there was the male God and the female God. And that Jesus was adopted by God. Uh, adoptionist theology is, has not historically been particularly uncommon. Uh, it's never been really picked up by Catholics or any of the Orthodox churches, and Protestants have generally stayed away from it. Uh, but it is, uh, it's it's the idea that Jesus was a man, you know, that Joseph was actually his father, 
and that at his baptism, God made him his son. And it was at the baptism that he became divine. Uh, biblically, that makes as much sense as God knocked up Mary. <laughs> like, the, you, you do find that story in the Gospels, but Paul talks pretty heavily about this idea of, of adoption, that God adopted Jesus in the Roman sense of someone needs an heir, so he finds a follower that, or, or, or somebody in his employ that he thinks would make a good heir and adopts an adult to take over the family business. So with that in mind, Anne Lee, who became known as Mother Anne Lee, had a vision that Adam and Eve's original sin was sex, and that Jesus was a male, the, the male human manifestation of God. And as they already all believed that the second coming of Jesus would be a woman, uh, Mother Anne, in her vision, uh, was adopted by God as the second coming of Christ, as the female manifestation. This meant that the second coming had happened, and her followers needed to act like it. And part of that was they had to be celibate. This vision was shortly before they got on a boat and got the hell out of England. Uh, Anne Lee had already spent some time in jail there. Uh, so they got to New York, and almost as soon as they got there, her husband left her and married again. Because he was not on board with the celibacy. The other seven members, it seems, stayed with her, and they established the first Shaker community. To make it clear, one of the most defining characteristics of a cult is, like, it, it's definitely a cult, is when the leader or founder claims to be divine. Like, that's, that's like, the number one, you're automatically a cult if, if you do that. Um, ignoring everything else, that right there is enough. When you add ev and everything else, the date they started is the only reason they aren't counted as one. Uh, so anyway, they got their first, set up their first community, and all was well. Uh, they, they did keep preaching. Um, they did get imprisoned <laughs> shortly after arriving since, you know, they got, got to New York in 1774 and the Revolutionary War broke out in 1776 when they got questioned about their loyalties, you know, being fresh immigrants from England, uh, they refused to take a side, believing that they could not take 
any oaths or or swear any loyalty to anyone on earth since they already uh were with god Anne and various other members would travel uh, after they got out of jail about six months uh most people were around were not really happy with the idea of them being arrested basically just for religious grounds so that didn't go over very long and uh so mother Anne and the other shakers um traveled around and preached and gained new members uh, obviously if they are all celibate then that cuts down on the main way that religions grow which is by having babies after Anne died, uh, Joseph Meekum became the, the leader until he died. Um, he take o took over in 1787 and moved their headquarters. He actually had experience as a Baptist minister, so he managed to also get people to view him as having the spiritual gift of revelation. Maintaining the gender equality dualism, uh, Joseph brought in uh, Lucy Wright into the ministry to serve alongside him, so there'd be a male leader and a female leader. And they developed the Shaker religious communism, where they would serve in a and live in a. a communal living arrangement uh, by 1793, so just six years after Meekum took over, uh, all property in each Shaker community became a consecrated whole, meaning it all became a single piece of property all owned by the community and nobody owned anything separately from that. Uh, in the 1790s, they wrote out written covenants, and you had to sign the covenants to become a member. And signing the covenant required confessing your sins, consecrating your property and labor to the society, and to become celibate. If you're married before joining, then your marriage would be dissolved upon joining. There were non-communicable non-communal orders which would be people who wanted to be shakers but didn't want to leave their families who would live outside of the community and at their peak there was about 4,000 shakers in total and about a thousand people in non-communal orders uh, that was that was the mid 1800s uh, so by the end of the the 1700s though uh, they had 10 total communities that they'd established across New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine. After Meekum died, Lucy Wright continued on and would go hold revival meetings to try to recruit more, more uh, people to join their movement. And, uh, she recruited a few other missionaries, and they pro uh, successfully brought in 
hundreds more. Uh, she also introduced hymns and dances. And they entered into Kentucky and Ohio. And they entered into Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. By this point, the Shaker services became basically a dance. Like, you'd have men on one side and women on the other, and they would do marches and dances and sing, and there was no harmonies in any of the songs, it was all melody, and, like, they would worship through dance. <laughs> Uh, they took the they took celibacy to some crazy extremes, where men and women were separated uh, very very heavily. Uh, there was very distinct women's work and very distinct men's work, and they never overlapped. Uh, men and women were never allowed to touch each other even to shake hands, and men and women were not allowed to go up or down stairways together or cross each other on stairs. Like, it was strict separation. Within the communities, they mostly did farming, and so the men would be out working in the fields and plant and work the fields until they're ready for harvest. And then they would leave the fields and the women would go and harvest the crop and do other work inside, like cooking and cleaning and sewing and preparing goods to sale to yeah, preparing goods to sell from stuff that they would harvest, uh, including the innovation that was seed packets. They would harvest the crop and save some of the seeds and put them in envelopes and sell them to people. And the whole idea of a seed packet came from them. Uh, over time, uh, on the male side of the community, they would also build buildings for the community, build furniture for the community. They kept everything very simple, very lightweight, and as cheap as possible, but they built everything to be as solid and long-lasting as possible. So they mostly worked with pine, and they made everything in ways that would make it last. Uh, and if you're farming right up until harvest, and then you don't farm anymore after that, uh, I guess what the men did to keep busy was woodworking. <laughs> Uh, and they made a lot of money selling produce and furnishings. Uh, by the time the Civil War came around, uh, the Shaker movement was at its peak. They were up to, you know, about 4,000 actual Shaker members. And... They had communities all over the all over New England and through the Midwest. When the Civil War happened, they were able to get conscientious objector status and be left out of the war. And when Union or Confederate armies came to their communities, they would provide food, comfort, and aid. 
after the war, industrialization took a major, major toll on the Shakers. Their furnishings and various woodworking products were having to compete with industrially produced goods that were far cheaper and they had been mostly selling to rural people and as urbanization was happening their their customer pool kept shrinking and their revenues were shrinking that actively caused the group to shrink uh it became the the incentive to join <laughs> went down so by the time the 20th century came around uh many of the the shaker communities had already closed then came the final blow that would actually kill them well they're not dead yet <laughs> they're close they're as close as possible um they had up to that time been taking in foundlings uh, these would be children dropped off at their community. Uh, they would buy up indentured servants who were children. They would find homeless kids and adults and bring them in. And use that as a way of, of helping grow their numbers. Uh, children who found themselves in the the shaker community uh were generally well taken care of they had tons of adults around who didn't have children who were happy to help and take care of them uh so they 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 did generally quite well uh shakers also set up schools that you know throughout the the 19th century had been among the best in the country for primary education uh and non-Shakers with the money would pay to send their kids to Shaker schools. So having kids in, coming into the community that way worked well. Until state governments started taking over and federal laws started prohibiting religion, religious organizations from completely running the process. What the Shakers had been able to do was bring in orphans and abandoned children and keep them in the community. But once the government said they couldn't control that, then the state would actually make sure that these kids got opportunities to get adopted. Uh, any kid that grew up in the Shaker community at the age of 21 would have to go out into the world and see what that's like and decide for themselves whether they want to stay or not. The vast majority left. Like, not many wanted to become Shakers and sign the Covenant. Uh, lifelong celibacy, that's a, that's a hard sell. So, as has been found with any 
celibate religious movement, it's self-limiting. They don't last that long. Shakers have surprisingly lasted a long time. But at present, there are three surviving members. They're down to just one community in Sabbath Day Lake in, in Maine. And yeah, three members left. There is Brother Arnold, Sister June, and Brother Andrew. Brother Arnold is 63. Sister June is 82. I don't know how old Brother Andrew is. They claim that they get several people inquiring about the Shaker religion uh, every week. So two or three people every week, 100 or so people a year looking into it. They're recruiting fewer than one person a decade. At that rate, they probably won't last more than a couple more, de a couple more decades. And the only reason why you can even say they could they'll last that long is because that's how long it's going to take uh, Brother Arnold to die. It would also be pretty safe to say that a religion that's down to three members is dead. <laughs> But yeah, the the shaker dualistic the shaker dualism uh is very definitely an interesting uh take on it. The idea of a a dualistic god has you know, it first showed up in Zoroastrianism with the good god and a bad god. Uh, which basically is what created the idea of a Satan to be the bad god to the Jewish god. And, but going male-female instead of good-bad is a very different take than has, as far as I'm aware, ever had ever been tried before. Uh, modern shakers do not say that there is a male god and a female god. They say that God is genderless, and for feeble human minds, you have to put it into terms like that for it to make sense. And that Jesus wasn't just a human who was adopted by God, but was actually divine. Uh, and and they, they say they don't have any problem with the Trinity. Uh, they are definitely a non-Trinitarian Trinitarian group. Uh, one of the things that Mother Anne uh, played on with her being the the true dualistic uh, opposite of Jesus was that Jesus was the son of a carpenter, and her dad was a blacksmith. So one worked with wood, the other worked with metal. <laughs> like, they tried to play the dualism idea as much as possible. 
But yeah, fascinating group. If you ever get a chance to visit a Shaker community, you know, most likely one of the ones that's run by the Park Service, definitely check it out. Uh, yeah, this is... <laughs> it's been pretty fun reading up on them. Alright, now it's time for feedback. I don't normally use this one for feedback, but I already used the other stinger, so I went ahead and went with this one. So... The first feedback we got was a voicemail. I'm pretty sure this was a wrong number. I don't know how you dial a wrong number and leave a message when it says, thank you for calling Humanist Take on the World. We love hearing from our listeners. And you actually have to press one to actually leave a message. Like, I put effort into making sure we don't get Stuff like wrong numbers and spam callers actually leaving voicemail. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, listener with the presumably listener with the uh 775 area code number. Uh, yeah, I can't help you with scheduling doctor's appointments. Uh, call the doctor's office direct. <laughs> And uh, via Twitter, we got a uh, shout-out from Madam underscore Atheist, who wrote, HTOTW Podcast, just found you guys, love your work. Uh, thank you, Madam Atheist. From Tom, in a comment on the About Us page, uh, I, I, I didn't realize I had comments enabled on the pages, um, but Tom wrote... Uh, thank you for your efforts in the battle for truth. The older I get, the more important the issue becomes. Uh, thank you, Tom. That that does mean a lot. Uh, we also got some comments on uh, July 3 and 4. Uh, sorry it's taking me a little while to get to these. Uh, I, had, I had COVID when these came in. And I'm... Yeah, so getting to them now. Um, from... From Kristen or Blasphemer. Hello all, haven't been able to tune in for months now, but hearing your voice and your sensibility made me so happy today. This was in, ep in, res uh, this was in response to episode 10, What to Do About Guns. Until we got to the part of your episode where you said, and I'm paraphrasing, normal citizens don't need assault weapons. I understand that you feel safe where you are. I do not feel safe in Texas. People down here talk about revolution daily. They hate any Democrat to the point where people are scared to display vote blue signs. I feel like I'm in danger every day for speaking my mind. Does it stop me? A little. I don't display my TST, the Satanic Temple, stickers or wear the Satanic Temple shirts. When, when I sent to the voting polls, they were filled with Trumpsters that made it nearly impossible to get in without sharing their germs, spitting and yelling at me to get out of the, to get out of the church in which we were voting. More so, I'm self-employed. I would expect my business to crash and burn, maybe literally. Considering last January 6th, considering the SCOTUS that now has control, considering the most recent arson attempt on TST headquarters, 
I feel like I'm in actual danger. In addition, my children are in actual danger if they say they are atheists at school. In the classroom, shunned and pointed out for not saying the pledge, their mom protesting in front of the courthouse, etc. I want and need my people-killing machines in order to protect myself and my family against the largest state in the lower 48. This is not a joke. Some states have lost their minds. This is so scary and serious. Let's make limits on guns, but don't take my right to mow down a lynch mob of Christians if, I need, if need be. Uh, and then the follow-up was, I should have used the word Republicans instead of Christians. Both are scary and most are full of hate. But the Trumpsters, I believe, are the true threats to my family's safety. Thank you, Christopher, for your comments. Uh, that does not change my thoughts, though. The... We live in a, a, a world of escalating violence. During the Bush years, there were programs to give surplus assault weapons to police departments that created incentives for gangs to get assault rifles to be able to compete. Once both cops and gangs had assault rifles, then everyone afraid of the government coming to take their guns needed to have something to match. If we go from there to everybody needs to have guns to match what the nutters have, that is a world of never-ending chaos. And that is not the kind of world I want to live in. It sucks like it, that it sounds like that's already the world you're in. The policy change that I want to personally see happen is just ending the sale of the most dangerous weapons. Over time, they will go out of circulation. We need to slowly and methodically try to get rid of them. Uh, and and I'm sure you'd feel a lot safer if the Trumpsters didn't have assault weapons themselves. I would like to see them not have them as well. If you want to contact us, you can leave us a voicemail at... 208-996-8667 or you can use the SpeakPipe button or just go to htotw.com slash SpeakPipe. Uh, you can also leave us a message on the contact form htotw.com slash contact. You can support the show on a monthly basis with Patreon or just once with PayPal credit or debit or Apple Pay or Google Pay. And you can find the links at htotw.com slash donate. And until next time, remember, not all those who wander are lost.